Greetings and welcome back to the Ideas Podcast. I'm Daniel Lazar, and I'm proud to be the co-founder of and the faculty advisor to the John F. Kennedy School's Ideas Club. Joining me today are three esteemed 12th graders, the first of which is Lily Walker. Lily, how's it going? Doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to see you. And along with Lily, we have Hannah Cook. What's happening, Hannah? Not much. And not to be outdone, never to be outshined, Jacob Reuter. Hi, Jacob. I'm Bazaar. So uh, this episode is exciting for a number of reasons, one of which is at least one of us has survived COVID. I'm not going to say which one, but that's exciting. And <laughs> marginally less awkwardly, no, really, really kind of awesome. This has been stewing for a while, but we can now announce with pleasure and pride that the Ideas Podcast is officially part of the Bear Radio Network. Bear Radio is Berlin's English-speaking podcasting community. It's home to a number of incredible shows, and we're really honored to be among them. So we're thrilled to join forces with Jill and Julia and the whole Bear community. And so congratulations, Lily and Hannah and Jacob. You have together created a podcast that is networked and being blasted out to the world. And um, I know that the people at Bear Radio are really excited, and I'm excited for you all. So congrats, and let's dig in. Lily Walker, you endorsed Nanette at the end of our last episode. And per your recommendation, because not only do I like you, I trust you. So I watched Nanette on Netflix on your recommendation, and I was not only deeply moved, I was deeply challenged. And so I'm really grateful for your endorsement. Thank you for that. And can you tee it up for us? Who is Hannah Gadsby? What is Nanette? And why are we discussing Hannah Gadsby's Nanette? So Hannah Gatsby is an Australian comedian. She is a lesbian woman. She's originally from Tasmania, which is like a really conservative part of Australia. She has autism and that makes her comedy style pretty unique. The name doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's, it's sort of a misnomer. Um, it's just the name of someone that she met one time. But the special is, in fact, about her and her life. But in a really unique way, it's not just a comedy special, uh, like you said earlier. Um, it's sort of a dissection of the role that trauma plays in comedy, but also the ways in which comedy can be insufficient to address trauma. And um, it's overall an explanation of Hannah Gatsby's relationship with comedy as in the middle of the special, she essentially announces that she's going to quit comedy or at least thinks she should quit comedy because it has stopped her from really processing a lot of the trauma that she's experienced in her life as a lesbian woman in a very conservative area alongside many other struggles. I think we're discussing it because 
you know, it's a really striking portrayal of where, you know, diversity in its most simplest form can sometimes be insufficient. So she's a comedian and she's a lesbian woman, but that doesn't mean that her story is accurate to that experience. She's changing herself to fit in with the standard of, you know, white male comedians, which she talks about. And the representation that she thinks needs to go along with her being a, you know, a lesbian female role model is not necessarily being served through the current understanding of comedy. And I think it's interesting to see how, how that shows up, you know, in her life, but then also to compare it to our lives and how we really treat diversity in our daily life. Table well set. Thanks, Lily. But I have to ask you for one more favor. Can you share a clip with us that speaks to the intersection of comedy and trauma that will help our listeners to understand what it is that Hannah Gadsby is trying to do here? Yeah, so this is actually um, a clip that Hannah recommended to me where Gatsby is talking about, that might be confusing, Hannah Cook, the panelist recommended to me, <laughs> <laughs> um, where Hannah Gatsby is is talking about, you know, her experience with diversity and and fear as sort of an outsider in her in her earlier life, which I think sort of encompasses a lot of what she's talking about in m- much of the special. So here it is. I believe the pathway was right. I believe we could paint a better world if we learned how to see it from all perspectives, as many perspectives as we possibly could, because diversity is strength. Difference is a teacher. Fear difference, you learn nothing. Picasso's mistake was his arrogance. He assumed he could represent all of the perspectives, and our mistake was to invalidate the perspective of a 17-year-old girl, because we believed her potential was never going to equal his. Hindsight is a gift. Can you stop wasting my time? A 17-year-old girl is just never, ever, ever in her prime. Ever. I am in my prime. Would you test your strength out on me? The thing that's interesting to me about that clip is it's really diving in very quickly, but the thing that sets this comedy special apart is that although it is really hilarious, um, you can see in that clip alone, she is setting up tension and then relieving it throughout the special. And she mentions this and she mentions her skill at it, but then she makes a very intentional choice, which is represented right here, to sometimes, especially near the end, not release that tension that she set up in the room. You know, what she's saying there is extremely provocative and there's no punchline. But it it doesn't mean that it's not a comedy special. It's just she's being very honest. And that's and that's really what makes this special different and what makes it worth talking about to me. Um and to add on to that, talking about um the tension that Hannah Gadsby brings up a lot during her comedy special, she also says towards the end that this is this this tension that she has created for her audience is the tension that she feels and that she lives with daily and that she's going like Lily said she chooses not to relieve it because she wants people to see it from her perspective and to be able to understand especially for 
she says this, um, the white heterosexual men out there to understand how she feels on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing about it is, you know, you really get sort of in a way tricked into it. I, I'm wondering if you guys felt the same way. I kind of, at the beginning of the special, I sort of bought into this fantasy and I was just expecting a comedy special in the way that all of them I've mostly ever seen have been, which is that, you know, regardless of the actual situation, the joke is going to be funny. It doesn't matter what's going on in real in reality because the comedian is, you know, skilled at finding the punchline. But I think she turns around a story about being threatened by a guy because he thought that she was hitting on his girlfriend. And at the beginning of the special, it's a very hilarious joke that the entire audience laughs at really hard. And then at the end of the special, she reveals that, like, the the story doesn't end where the punchline happens, even though it, it's where she stops telling it. The guy beat her up, and she was seriously harmed and didn't go to the hospital because she was scared, and she hated herself. And in that way, she, you know, implicates the audience, and they're, they're complicit in buying into this fantasy, um, which they often, she, she implies they know better, uh, but they don't care. They want to they wanna live in a world where, you know, it's, it's all a punchline, and there's, there's not a sad ending to a lot of these stories. Yeah, for sure. And kind of building off of that, I think that sort of begs the question, is the comedy or the humor, is it a release of the tension or is it a relief from the tension? Because I feel like that's sort of the, the thing she sets up, right? Like it's a good distraction. The tension is there and we, we make it a joke and it distracts us for a second. But like Lily just mentioned, the story doesn't end where the punchline ends. So it's really not, it's not so much as a release as a, a short relief to sort of make it more bearable. And then also, I didn't tell you guys, if I remember correctly, what was going to happen in the end of the special when I sent it to you. And I know in the middle of the night, Hannah sent me a picture of her crying because <laughs> she realized what was happening. Um, and I think we, I don't, did you guys also have that experience of just like being kind of shocked with, with what happened? Um, not necessarily in a bad way, just, you know, feeling like the entire narrative narrative had been turned on you. Yeah, definitely. I Well, I when I Googled it, I saw comedy and I was like, oh, awesome. I'm a super big fan of comedy. And I was on the phone with Lily and she's like, oh, n- not, not really. <laughs> and then I sent her a picture of me at 1 a.m. sobbing because I got to the end of Nanette. And in the beginning, I was like, you know, I'm a fan of dark humor and I, I kind of like the self-deprecating, like she calls it self-deprecating humor. Kind of, I like that approach. But it turned quickly and I really liked the way that she presented her special. It was a structured really really well and I think it kind of shows how laughter and humor is a is a way to cope but it doesn't fix the problem and I think this goes back to what Jacob was saying it is more of a relief it is more of a distraction than it is a very effective coping mechanism in the way that she uses Mm -hmm. it I mean I think the thing is also like I agree with her completely in her case that you know comedy isn't telling the story that is accurate to her life and that would teach people the real things um that they need to know about you know homophobia and bigotry but i don't know necessarily that i agree that you know comedy can't teach a real lesson overall i think i've seen a lot of comedy specials that i felt like you know have have taught me something about you know being courteous or i mean actually to pivot a little bit like comedy in, you know, from everywhere, from children's shows to, to the things we see as adults, 
it does often try to teach us a lesson. So I don't know that I agree with her necessarily that it doesn't teach real lessons. But then in a sense, I think, think stand-up, you know, that's not its intention. Maybe we should think more that it should be. What do you guys think about that? Like, do you think that you learn lessons from comedy? Or is comedy, like Jacob said, sort of a release from the tension that you might need? Well, I mean, I think comedy is in itself a form, like a medium. Um, and I think we don't usually think of it that way. But comedy is always, just like any other medium, meant to show a message or have a message, right? And I think obviously the way you implement comedy can can differ on how effective that message is delivered but i think yeah for sure um lessons can be learned through comedy it's a very effective medium to get people interested in ideas as well as like ideas be more palatable to people simply because uh, it makes you laugh and um, it takes some of the more serious punch out of it and i think we can't forget i mean a comedian, they're paid. I mean, their job is to be an, an entertainer. People come to watch these shows to be entertained. Again, so she's not, you know, having a TED talk where she talks about serious issues and how to how to fix them. But she kind this is kind of a new format because she kind of combines that because it kind of it did remind me a bit of a TED talk. And she talks about very touchy and very personal and horrendous issues. And so I really liked her approach to it because. She kind of she kind of slaps you in the face and kind of turns the stuff around on you and kind of shocks you with this. And the humor lightens it up. But you also see just how terrible it is. And it's very raw and emotional, especially towards the end. So then do you like think. I mean, she's saying comedy doesn't teach a real lesson, but this is being marketed as a comedy special. Pretty much it's being marketed without it being obvious what's going to happen in the ending. Do you think it really is comedy or do you think that she she strays from comedy in order to teach a lesson or do you think it's maybe both? I don't know. It's a mixture of both. I do I do agree with your statement that I, I think comedy can definitely teach a lesson. It's just a different way and it's a different approach to teaching that lesson that's less conspicuous, you know. It seems to be in the tradition of the one-person show, formerly known as the one-man show, right? Where there are set comedic pieces, but there's something expository about it, something revelatory about it. I don't know that Gadsby can be credited for reinventing or otherwise subverting either medium but what she does really brilliantly, it seems to me, is to use comedy, some of which is sort of like easy, almost hackneyed comedy, right? Like self-deprecating, I'm a lesbian comedy to lure her audience into a sort of a comfort zone. Because we're all very comfortable with the first 20, 30 minutes of it. And then she, she puts that turn on it. It's a real dagger, isn't it? At least the aesthetic of a comedy show is there. Because in the beginning, like Mr. Lazar just mentioned, it, it does feel just like a normal comedy show. Um, and because of that, because that is done so effectively, and because she is a very good comedian, the second half catches you completely off guard. And thus the message lands way more effectively. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but like Bo Burnham. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, does a lot of of you know self reflective comedy, which isn't necessarily happy. A lot of it is you know really worried about himself. 
I think he 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 goes for a, a sort of similar format where it's a semblance of comedy, and he makes sort of cheap jokes throughout. Um, I would say even cheaper jokes than than Gatsby's making. But he's also really seriously reflecting, and he takes you through like, you know, comedic songs where he's he's really considering like whether he is fit to be a comedian. So I I see a real connection between those, and that's part of why I like Nanette so much. But actually, I think Nanette did it quite a bit better. And that might just be because, you know, her situation is a little more interesting to riff on when it comes to, you know, subverting comedy. So, yeah, no, I don't know if she she invented the genre, but actually I do think, you know, the implications of her special have been pretty widespread. She's really important. Everyone has an opinion about the special, too. Some people say it's not real comedy. And some people say those people are just feel threatened by it or something. You can tell that she's extremely passionate, but she also has points that everyone can relate to although they're very specific to her life. So she challenges the form and she challenges the audience. She challenged me. And in fact, she challenged me quite directly. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But she challenges you also. And I guess what I want to hear from you is what is Hannah Gadsby challenging us to think or to feel or to consider? What is her specific challenge to you. I think this goes back to what Lily was kind of talking about and what you brought up again just now, Mr. Lazar and Jacob, about this fantasy kind of making us feel comfortable in the beginning, the same way that society tries to live without tension, conflict-free and comfortable and tries to neglect things that are controversial. I think what she's trying to do is she's trying to, you know, make us aware and make us look and reflect upon how we approach these things as a society, but not just as a society, as an individual. Again, she directly calls out straight white men, straight white males, sorry, um, and targets them and actually all turns it around on them and says, you know, you constantly make jokes. Like your humor is also like it's at the expense often of marginalized groups and of females and of LGBTQ plus community. And if you can't take a joke, like now that I'm making a joke, a lesbian's up here, and I look like a man, and if you can't take a joke, then, you know, maybe we should challenge that you are, you know, in power. Yeah, I mean, she really doesn't shy from, like, I would say, if not accusing, at least, like, really implicating her audience in a lot of, you know, the the trauma she's been through and in their complete complacency to that. Because she's performing in Sydney, in Australia. So, you know, the the people around her are directly responsible via democracy for the system she mentions that have made, you know, being gay illegal. I mean, literally a criminal offense until, you know. 1997 is when they said in Tasmania they legalized yeah. homosexuality. Uh, the jokes she makes at the expense of straight white males, I think it's really telling because they are they're really funny. And they have a punch to them, but they're also hurtful, right? Like they're mean jokes. And I think that's sort of the point, right? Like the point was like, you keep making these types of jokes at us, telling telling us they're just jokes. Now the tables are turned just because it's a joke doesn't mean it's not hurtful. doesn't mean it doesn't cause damage. A joke isn't an excuse necessarily. A joke is a form of, is a medium just like any other. Exactly. Yeah, I think she's, you could say she's giving them a taste of their own medicine. And I would like to have seen the faces of all the straight white men in that room, but I couldn't. <laughs> well, you can look at the face of this straight straight white male if if you'd like to. 
I was really moved by it. And I don't take umbrage, but I do want to hear your opinions as to whether you think that in an effort to prove a point, she stereotypes. She stereotypes in ways that, as is consistent with stereotyping, draws uh, broad brushstrokes where more finer, nuanced points could probably be made. Not really, in my opinion. I think she's talking from experience. I mean, she's been, as a lesbian, especially in like growing up in a in a conservative environment she's been target of all these jokes of all these of all these attacks and of all these insults and i mean she talks about all her experiences everything that happened to her that she mentioned was at the hand of straight white men or men for that matter i'm not sure if they were all straight and white and so yes okay she does kind of play on some stereotypes but i think she's talking from experience and i think she She's completely justified in doing so in the way that she does attack them. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not really her job to comfort straight white men um, in any way. If you, I mean, don't, I don't mean you specifically, I mean in general, if someone is a straight white man and they're not responsible for this, then they needn't feel responsible for it. They can sleep at night. And they need to be sure of that in themselves. She doesn't need to comfort them. I feel like the stereotyping was intentional because it's often done the other way around. Like when making jokes about marginalized communities, oftentimes, you know, stereotype, like that's the, the cheapest joke to make. And people are saying, oh, well, it's just a stereotype. Obviously don't mean everyone. Uh, that's just sort of a given. Um, and I feel like, again, that's uh, Gatsby's sort of ingenious way of sort of twisting that narrative. And Yeah, and I don't think she's trying to polarize necessarily. She does say, you know, she thinks, it's kind of disappointing how society always focuses on the many differences between males and females when there are so many similarities that actually unify us. So even though she does attack them, she doesn't do so, I think, to hate on men. I mean, she says straight up she's not a man hater and she does not think that women are better than men, but she has every reason to criticize them and to call them out. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the examples of, of men that she's bringing up are not just random men she met on the street who didn't do anything to her. She's she's talking about people who, who seriously, you know, hurt her. And then she's talking about, you know, figures in history who she's been taught to admire by the patriarchy, by, you know, formal education, who she sees no reason to. So the example that you heard in that clip earlier about Picasso, um, she has an art history degree, and that plays a rather small part but still kind of important part in this special because she's talking about how you know she was taught and most of her peers were taught to really respect Picasso because his contributions to the world were so great what would we do without cubism he sees art from all of these different perspectives and he combines them in his in his works um and then she she talks about how that narrative being perpetuated is just not true and so many of the perceptions we have about straight white men are not accurate, you know? We see them as person neutral, she mentions. We see them as the standard individual. And they're not. It's just not true. Um, and so I think she, she feels, and I feel the same way, that she's punching up. And because of that, she doesn't need to apologize for it. I wanted to ask you all about that. There, there are some real debates about the utility of so-called punching up. 
I'm not sure I'm convinced by the utility of punching up. I think it's a vexed notion. I, I think I understand where it comes from. Can someone define what it means to punch up? And then can we talk about whether we think it's healthy to punch up, so to speak? Punching up is like making jokes at the expense of people who are inherently more advantaged than you. So like if a poor person makes fun of a rich person, they're punching up. If a rich person makes fun of poor people, they'd be punching down. And clearly one of those is, is problematic and the other one's usually socially acceptable. I don't necessarily think that what she's doing is terrible. She's just making jokes at their expense. And I know this sounds maybe like hypocritical because if a straight white man makes a joke at my expense, I think I would get upset about it. Even if all these terrible things hadn't happened to her, I think she has every right to do so. She's angry and understandably so, but she isn't trying to spread this anger. She's trying to make people understand where she's coming mm -hmm. from and why she is and how to fix it. Right. She's never saying you need to be as angry as I am. She's just saying you need to live with the tension that I'm imparting upon you. Um, those are very different things. I think it's fundamentally clearly better, first of all, to punch up than to punch down. I think that's something we can all agree on. And I think like on the utility of punching up, I think the main part is by punching up, you prove that it's possible. You prove that you are, despite being of lower social status, if you will, people who are part of your demographic, they can resonate with that and they can feel inspired by that. And I think that is for sure a utility. I would definitely say that punching up in this case, at least, is effective. And I think it's productive because obviously there's hegemonic masculinity in our societies and to to expose them to this kind of ridicule, the way that they ridicule minorities and the way that she's been ridiculed makes them kind of, I hope, I hope at least makes them reflect and rethink that the way that they, you know, joke and the way that they treat these marginalized groups. So there's a consensus among the three of you that punching up is necessary and proper and in this particular case at least to be applauded i have a a question if you don't mind she asks us to help her to take care of her story i thought that was a really powerful request what does she mean by that and what can we do to take care of her story I think discussion is a, is, is, is a big part of it. I think, you know, social change, that's where it starts. And I think that's ultimately what she's saying is that, you know, we need to rethink, you know, how we treat queer women in society and how we treat white, straight white men in society. And that starts with talking about it. Yeah. And she also brings up an important point, kind of, you know, how, how you raise your kids in the way that internalizing homophobia and teaching one kid to hate and the other one to hate themselves is super counterproductive. And that to me, that really spoke to me. I mean, I'm not a parent. I'm, I'm a teenager. I'm 17 years old, but um, that really resonated with me. Yeah. I mean, if that was her stated goal, then it was clearly a success, right? I mean, it's massive. The, like we said, it's massive in the comedy scene. Like, uh, like Hannah said, it sparked the discussion it wanted to start. If that was her goal, then um, she was definitely successful. It's a good thing that this is what we're talking about. And we're not just talking about another straight white guy making, you know, silly jokes about whatever he's lived through. Um, not that that's not important, but we've seen a lot of it over a lot, long time. Is that Jacob's cat? 
Yeah. The, the cat's on the podcast again. Celebrity cat. He was sleeping earlier. I assumed he would be quiet, but no. This is the cat's premiere on, on Bear Radio. <laughs> don't leave my dog out of this. The dog can come. Lazar can bring his kid, I guess. I don't think you have a pet. <laughs> so I'm really interested in focusing on uh, Jacob's cat and the better the, the bigger battle between cats and dogs in the world but this special focuses on discrimination against gadsby's so-called queerness or as she calls it quote gender not normal this gender not normal presentation um and from her sexuality but gadsby grew up in another time and place like do you think this is common in our community too at least from what I've seen, which, you know, is limited, um, sexuality is much more, you know, av- available to, to be shifted. And it's much more accepted if you have a sexuality besides, you know, 100% straight um, in our community. I don't think anyone really has an issue with it anymore at our school. Worldwide, of course, there are still issues. But I think actually in our school alone, there are some pretty major issues with gender, with you know, not recognizing transgender students or gender nonconforming students at all. I mean, we fought for like a year to get a gender, uh, a gender neutral bathroom. And there's still only one. They had to take it from the female teachers because, you know, the school board was not open to the idea that bathrooms need not be gendered. Well, we're in Berlin. Um, Tasmania, by comparison, is essentially hell on earth, right? So it's, it's also the sort of rural versus urban and like we have a bunch of there's a bunch of factors where we live and where our school resides that we just sort of take for granted that just aren't a thing most places in the world but if you went to a school somewhere in the middle of saxony you would have similar issues um as the ones described by gatsby from tasmania she says something about the seed of hatred always like always only being planted in from the outside and this notion of her internalized homophobia that she grew up with because of because of where you know the community that she grew up in the so-called bio belt in Tasmania the way that it made her feel this great shame and I think she said it took her about 10 years even after she came out of the closet to even like feel like she was worth anything and the way that she talks about being beat up and her feeling like that was all she was worth she didn't take herself to the hospital she didn't report it because she felt like Maybe not that that's what she deserved, but maybe that's that's all she was worth. She finally realizes this and that she's telling her story and that people can learn from this. Can I dial back into this? I'm curious from a student's perspective how open the Kennedy School community is to, quote unquote, gender not normal people. There's definitely been remarkable strides in the last couple of years, which I find really heartening. I had goosebumps kind of just thinking about it. But I suspect that we have a ways to go, but I really don't know. What's the state of play at JFK when it comes to gender not normal? JFK, like most places, enforces the gender binary from, you know, entrance class on. Understandably so. Most people do. But then, you know, when you get to high school and people really do start experimenting with their gender, our school is not necessarily open to it. I don't know anyone who openly uses like neo pronouns at our school or even really, I don't know anyone. Maybe there are a couple people who use like they, them pronouns, 
you know, anyone who's willing to accept trans people in the first place, which honestly, I, I don't want to speak for, you know, everyone who's trans at our school, but my understanding is that a lot of teachers still really don't put in the work to even use the right pronouns or to not dead name students. But there's no space, as far as I know, really, for teachers to understand neo-pronouns or to, to learn about, you know, what it means to call a student they, them. You still have stu- have teachers saying things like they, them is improper grammar because it's a plural pronoun and stuff like that, which, you know, everyone who's a student at the school knows is just an excuse. So I think there's a lot of dialogue to be had and there's a lot of dialogue to be started when we're younger because um, as Gatsby actually mentions, she says, you know, by the time she realized she was gay, it was too late because she was already a homophobe. So, so I feel like in general, our school and our, our student body and our school community does a pretty good job at welcoming and accepting the LGBTQ plus community. I think the real issue, and this is reaches out to society as well, is how we how we see people that are, quote unquote, and Gatsby calls herself this incorrectly female or incorrectly by societal standards, live their gender. And that's, she brings, the reason she was beat up so savagely was goes beyond homophobia. She says it was gendered because in the beginning she says how the lesbian community has been somewhat invisible because it's societally, socially accepted for girls to be, you know, closer with each other. And she says, quote unquote, they're just having a cuddle. And then she turns it around and says, because of her appearance and because she is incorrectly female and presents herself differently, not by the standard of what is supposed to be feminine, she was targeted. Mm-hmm. by a homophobe it goes deeper than just being lesbian it has to do with how she presents her gender yeah and I think that does show up in a lot of places in our school from like our gendered sport classes to our gendered bathrooms to the way that that boys and girls are treated differently by you know a lot of the school we don't leave that much room for people who are non-traditionally presenting in their gender or in a gender. Right. And if I may be so bold, I mean, I've personally experienced males fetishizing lesbians and then also being very uncomfortable and very judgy when they actually are exposed to someone that is bisexual or lesbian in that sense. Because when it's real and when it's no longer just a fantasy or something that's for their pleasure, it suddenly is something that challenges them a lot more and almost threatens them in a way. Hannah Gatsby seems to really be a victim of not just patriarchy and stifling gender normative behavior. She suffers from ADHD and autism. Uh, She grew up in, as we talked about, in Tasmania, in this really retrogressive place where she was illegal and she doesn't really find, as I understand it, a comfortable place within the lesbian community. She jokes early on in the easygoing, <laughs> the more easygoing portions of her special about, you know, not being lesbian enough. You know, there was this great line. She's like, I, I cook a whole lot more than I lesbian. And she tells this great joke about trying to make lesbians laugh, but, you know, lesbians don't laugh, and it's all this sort of self-deprecating humor, which the, she later turns. But she really has a hard time identifying 
as lesbian. She says that she's more likely to identify as tired uh, than as lesbian, which, again, a great line, but not a throwaway line, like a really profound line. She's tired, she's angry, and she has every right to be both. She wonders, as she says, where do the quiet gays go? The, the special opens, and at the very end, uh, and ending credits, it, it's the sound of a, a teacup being quietly placed on the saucer, and that's like her comfort zone. But she can't seem to find that in the gay community, and she, instead she finds flags that are loud and brash and, in her words, too busy. And she just says really bluntly that she's just not that good at being gay. And I guess I wonder, as young people who are operating in, in a moment where you're carving out your identities and you have a lifetime to do it, but of course, you know, youth more so than perhaps other times in our lives, how do you react to the identity crisis of this brilliant woman in her 40s really suffering? Is that a source of inspiration does that is it distressing to you both we can or at least i can because of my age definitely relate to the identity crisis part where she doesn't know where she fits in how she fits in and what exactly her identity is i can't um relate so much with the finding the job that makes her life easier part because i'm not at that part in my life yet but i can tell you that we kind of talked about anger in the beginning and how we responded to this. And I can tell you that it actually scared me a little bit, her identity crisis, and it disappointed me. That's part of the reason that I was crying at one point was to see that at her age and in the society we live in today that I would like to believe is a lot more open. She has still encountered so many terrible things and she has suffered so much and she's still struggling to come to terms with or even find and create her own identity so that was a little scary for me more so than it was inspiring i'm really moved by that i'm really moved by the vulnerability that she is allowing herself to have but i feel sad for the ways in which she has to be so vulnerable if she didn't seem like she was in so much pain I would feel really happy for her that she that she's obviously so large and contain multitudes. And I think that's really beautiful. And I would just want to celebrate. I celebrate her, but I would want to celebrate with her. But she seems to have a really hard time doing so because she's been perpetually demeaned by a superstructure that doesn't value her and by individuals within that superstructure that beat her and rape her and dehumanize her. And the hardest part for me in watching this special was how naked she seemed on stage how raw and vulnerable she allowed herself to be despite the pain 
the unimaginable suffering that she's been subjected to in her effort to just quietly be herself. And that's the part of the special that shook me so deeply and moved me so profoundly and made me so anxious to talk about it with you all and to, to, to listen to you. There was one part that made me cry, if I could just share that. And it is when she's talking about Vincent van Gogh and how he was so incapable of dealing with his times. He was kind of a mess. He was awful to be around. He couldn't sell any paintings because he couldn't be around people. He was obviously doing like the most, some of the most amazing work of, of his era, perhaps of all time. But he just couldn't deal with the stresses of his days. His, his spirit, his mind was just not up to the task. He suffered immensely. And his brother, Theo, is really, in a way, the hero of the story. Because he is, Theo is, like you guys. You three. Theo's like you three. His empathy levels, his willingness to just like be there for his brother and to tend to him and to care for him and to just try to keep him alive and to try to stop him from hurting for himself and to give him someone to talk to. You three are the Theo Van Goghs of, of the story. Uh, the more Theo Van Goghs there are in the world, the better, and the more of you three there are in the world, the better. And with that, if I may, I'd like to ask the three of you to offer an endorsement a chance to recommend to our audience something that speaks to the idea's mission, ideally something they can get their hands on in the throes of a pandemic. Each of you, one at a time. Jacob, what do you recommend this episode? All right. So I think this is something a lot of people are already familiar with, but I want to call attention to it specifically uh, because Ezra Klein just left Vox. The Vox YouTube channel is personally one of one of my favorite sources of both entertainment and information. Uh, they do great, super compact videos on all sorts of stuff. Um, it yeah, it's always enjoyable. It's always very informative. They have the sources um, that you can read through. It's super comprehensive and it's great. Anyone who's politically interested and hasn't seen the Vox YouTube channel yet, I would highly recommend it. Good luck, Ezra Klein. Hannah Cook, what do you recommend? So my recommendation is actually something that I know every single one of the listeners is fully capable of doing and they should already be doing, and that is to fucking social distance, if I haven't made myself clear enough. <laughs> um, as a, and I'm going to go out and say this, I am the COVID survivor in here. As a COVID <laughs> survivor here, um, I just really want to, tell everyone again to please 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 just social distance and to just sacrifice the momentary happiness of right now so that we can figure the shit out and it can go away and we can start living our lives normally again 
that is the wisest endorsement of the day. Kind of unbeatable. <laughs> uh, can I just say, I will confess to looking at my phone while we were recording. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is you three can sleep in tomorrow. I got a COVID test at 8.30. I mean, sorry, but. Yeah, you're like Lily's like really, like literally Lily shaking fist her pumping. fist in the air. Well, I wish you the best of luck, though. Like genuinely, I hope yeah. you're okay. You you didn't get infected by me. Please don't get infected by someone else. No, it's all right. I mean, you know, whatever goes around, no stigma. But uh, all right, we will, per your recommendation, social distance, Lily. Okay, following that. I'm going to recommend, once again, probably for like the eighth time, uh, a Netflix show, which I clearly watch too many of. <laughs> I'm going to endorse uh, a show that I believe was produced or created, actually, by Mindy Kaling. It's called Never Have I Ever. It is uh, a show. It's only got one season right now, but it's been renewed for a second season um, about a girl named Debbie who's 15, she lives in LA, but she's originally Indian, and her father has died. She's gone through a lot of trauma related to that, but she's also just, you know, a, a silly teen girl trying to live her life. She's got two best friends, one of whom is a theater buff and the other one is a STEM nerd. So it's got a lot of sort of high school stereotypes, and it's a sort of classic fun high school show, but it really does, you know, put a focus on diversity and perspectives that are kind of underrepresented, um, which is something, you know, Mindy Kaling is great at because she is, you know, dealing with losing her dad. She's dealing with this immigrant identity. She's dealing with trying to fit in, in an American high school while her mom is pulling her in the direction of Indian culture. And I just found it a really interesting exploration of that and what it's like to be at the intersection of two cultures, um, you know, in modern day America and in modern day high school. Um, I mean, it's a little bit similar to our experience, but I would say this story is a little more fun than my life. It is great to spend some time with you. Sorry, I will miss you tomorrow morning. But thank you for taking a deep dive into Nanette. Our listeners can find us for now at jfkissideas.wixsite.com. You could read our journals. We got a new journal that's going to be coming out in a week or two about national identity, and we'll have some podcasts to dovetail with that. I'm wicked excited about that. I'm sure you all are too. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a like, comment, offer a review. But most importantly, if you're listening and you respect what we're trying to do here, Please share ideas with your people. Bye, Hannah. Bye, Lily. Bye, Jacob. Bye. 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 Bye.